Well, hey, good morning, exchange. We are in First uh, Peter chapter two this morning. We're going to launch from there, uh, but we're going to be uh, surveying a lot of the New Testament. So, uh, one of the tools that we have available for you, uh, if you go to the Church Center app. Uh, there's a um, place where you can find Exchange Church on that and then go to home screen and click that button that says sermons and it has all of the notes and passages that we're going to use for the sermon today. And so there's going to be plenty. Uh, We're going to move quick. And so if you want to uh, use that, uh, that would probably be helpful today. So if you didn't know, uh, football season is in full swing. Yesterday started uh, a lot of college games. I'm sure you saw that. Uh, The NFL starts this week. And what's amazing to me about that is uh, people who probably got raging mad at each other on the way to the game, uh, expressed all kinds of road rage, uh, probably hugged and cheered each other in the stands because simply they were wearing the same color shirt. Uh, there's this this union that happens around this time uh, with people on the same team. It sounds absurd and crazy, but there's this bond that brings us together in that way. I, I think you probably know this to be true uh, with different branches of the military. You probably have a friend uh, who has a tattoo somewhere and it identifies them or they say, uh, I've served here. And especially if they served in the same era or went to the same camp uh, or served uh, in the same war, there's this unmistakable, unbelievable bond that happens, right? Or maybe for some of us uh, moms, you see another mom walk in the door completely disheveled and you say, your baby has colic. I totally know. I get it, right? And your heart just bursts for them. We have these bonds. And in the same way, I think uh, scripture points to us this incredible bond that comes to us as believers. It's a bond that scripture says uh, supersedes all other bonds, all other teams. It's one that bonds us together like nothing else can or nothing else will. And Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says this, But you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen to this. For once you were not a people, But now you are a people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He puts us in this unbelievable group of people together, bonded together in a way that says, this is this, this, this bond for us and with us and to us uh, supersedes all other things. This unifying, uh, uniting factor with us in the church has been made desperately aware uh, of our own depravity and need for mercy. And we've all drank from the fountain of grace. I think this bond shows us that we feel both the weight of our sin and the goodness of God. It's never ending. And scripture reminds us, uh, it makes us a people, it's his people. But what's even more fascinating about this letter is that it begins with uh, dissension. It begins with uh, the people not acting in this way. It was written to churches, uh, churches that were apparently struggling with division. 
Notice what Peter says just a few verses before this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. And he says this, Therefore, putting aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So he's talking about these divisions that are taking place in the church. He's talking about slander and all of this malice and all of these things. And then he pushes them and says, don't you understand and don't you realize you were not a people, but now you're people. And the thing that has made you a people is your common need for grace and mercy and your common finding of it. He says, because you've tasted of the goodness of God, we should live differently amongst ourselves. The church, he says, should treat each other differently because of our great need of the gospel. A mark of the church, according to Peter, is that we should live very differently among each other than the world would expect. Think about this for a second. A mark of the church, according to Peter, is that we would live very differently among each other than the world would ever expect. We're able to put away things like malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander and other harmful things. We're able to put those things away because we know what it's like to be deeply in need of forgiveness. And we know what it's like to find it. In a way, I think Peter's saying that this should dissolve many other conflicts of the church and the posture of conflicts that arise from just being human. The things that typically take place in neighborhoods and in homes, and extended families, and in jobs, and at schools, the things that typically take place by just being human, he says, should be superseded by our collective need for the gospel. And that should supersede every other team, every other division, he says. Here's what I want to push on today. This big umbrella is that there's great expectation that the church will treat each other miraculously different than the world. I put that word in there very intentionally, miraculously different than the world. This ability is in a miracle, a grace from God. Not only should we treat the church generally different, but we should specifically treat others in the church differently as well. Notice what Paul says in Galatians chapter six. He says, so then while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people and listen to this and especially those of the household of the faith. Paul pushes in and he says, look, we should be good people. We should treat others kindly, but especially those who we are in community with. Our hearts should be linked to them in a special way. There should be an extra care towards one another. When we walk in the door, we should know that we're going to be loved differently here. And that's not just because people are better. We don't love differently and love better because we're better. It's not that we're easier to love or don't make mistakes or as many mistakes. It doesn't mean that we're easier to love because we never let our own selfishness get in the way. It doesn't mean that we're easier to love because we just agree with what everyone else wants. It means that when we've disappointed one another, when we disagree with one another, when we disregard one another in our own humanity and flesh, the spirit supersedes all of those things and pushes us to unity, one with God and one that wins the day. The way that the flesh wins is by writing people off, criticism, strife, malice. 
But when disagreements go to the spirit, we find unity. In the spirit, I can acknowledge thoughts and opinions and disagreements. And my love for those in community supersedes all of those things. That's a different kind of love. The need for the gospel and being the recipients of grace puts us on the same team that supersedes all other teams. Let me say that again. The need for the gospel and being recipients of grace supersedes all other teams. All teams. Can I ask you this exchange as we just kind of push into this series? I'd love for you to meditate this week. On what team may I be tempted to put first in my life? What team may I be tempted to put first in my life? Would it be a team of a political party? Or a team of a medical decision? Or a team of a social issue? What team supersedes being needy of mercy and recipients of grace. See, the enemy will try to tempt you in a way that says these teams have to be in place so that we can be united in this team. But that's not the truth. The enemy is desperately seeking to divide us on various teams, on many different teams. We have to understand and value being the people of God more than any other unifying or disunifying thing that this world could throw at us. I'll tell you what that means. When we disagree politically, we can disagree passionately and still fellowship. It means that I can have a problem with the way that you vote, but still choose to invite you at my table and live and love you well. It means that our greatest alliance isn't the other team or or anything other than the gospel. This is what unifies us. This is what has to unify us. That's sadly not the case. Tom Rainer, um, the former uh, director of Lifeway and now um, a research group, uh, he asked a question directed towards pastors on Twitter, and he said it absolutely blew up. This was directed towards pastors, to, and the question was, give me the most absurd reasons why people have gotten arguments, caused division, or actually left the church. Here's just a few. One, and, and apparently these things uh, have backstories. I'm just going to read the bullet points. There's an actual argument and people left the church over the length of the worship pastor's beard. Jesse, we're gonna have to trim that up a little bit. There's a fight whether or not to build a children's playground or to use that same land for a cemetery. A church argument uh, and a vote decided if a clock in the worship center should be removed. A 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet, brown or black, two, three, or four drawers. A fight over a picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. I think, I, actually, I don't know. I might, I might say, like, what is Jesus going to look like for us, you know? A petition to have all church clean-shaven. There's a big church argument over the discovery that the church budget was, listen to this, 10 cents off. 
And this pastor said, after a lengthy battle, somebody literally came up to the podium and put a dime there and said, can we all go home? <laughs> Two different churches. This is, this is crazy to me. Two different churches reported the t- that the type of coffee that they served in the lobby caused division. And, and we can laugh over these things. I mean, they're, they're, honestly, they're, they're absurd and they're funny. But what things are worth division? But what's the line to where it's not absurd anymore? When we're all united in, in the body of Christ by the desperate need for grace and the recipients of mercy, what is our line? That we're able to say, okay, those things are absurd, but this one isn't. See, the enemy's desperately trying to divide us on anything that he can find. And what we do and what we have is all of these teams and all of these alliances that we stack up and place ahead of the gospel. But scripture says, listen, don't you remember that you weren't a people and God made you a people, not because you put the same color shirt on, not because you made the same medical choices, not because you voted in the same way, but because you desperately needed mercy and grace and you all found it. That's what makes us unified together. So it has to make us unified together. The scripture speaks of this supernatural unification so much through the New Testament. It uses this term and this phrase, one another, to describe and instruct how believers should treat one another within the context of the church. Now, you'd be surprised to know this phrase, one another, occurs over 50 times in the New Testament. 50 times scripture says how we should love and treat one another. I did this this week. I separated those 50 verses into 17 different categories. We're not, I don't have 17 different points today. But what I do is on your way out, I have a, a handout with 17 different categories of the one another's with all of the passages listed. I would love for you to study this this week, look at it this week, and identify maybe the place in your life that's the most difficult. Which one of these one another's is desperately difficult for me? We'll have those on the tables on your way out. For now, I'm going to give a few, a few that I think are really, really important. The first, and I believe that the, one of the greatest is that the church should love one another. We should love one another. Here's just a sampling of the 14 one another's uh, that has to do with love. This I command to you, Jesus says, that you love one another. Simple command, very basic, very to the point, no room for error. Love each other, guys. He later says this in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you would love like this, love one another by this All men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus literally gives the world a license to judge us and our faith based on the way that we love each other. 1 Peter 4 verse 8 says this, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. 1 John 4 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Here's the point. There's a great expectation that the church will love each other miraculously different than the world. There's a great expectation that the church will love each other miraculously different 
than the world. We know this command flows from the first and second, right? The Pharisees uh, tested Jesus and they said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered and he says, to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love our neighbor as yourself. This is as equally complicated as it is simple. How do we love one another? What does that look like? But do you remember Paul says, especially to the household of faith? What does that look like? You know, we probably all define love and want to be loved in a different way. And I'm not talking about the love languages. I'm talking about the ways we believe that love is displayed. I think it's been skewed and distorted and perverted in our culture today. Here's one example. Most recently, I think, uh, maybe the most absurd example. The governor of California made a statement about love this week, uh, this year. And after the Supreme Court had made its ruling overturning Roe versus Wade, he spent $100,000 of his reelection campaign fund to fund 18 billboards in seven different states, one of which is North Carolina. And here's what it said. Need an abortion, California is ready to help. Need an abortion, California is ready to help. And then at the bottom of the billboard, he quotes Jesus and says, love your neighbor as yourself. On the billboard, advertising their million dollar, $1 million website, to help people find places to get abortions in California. I can't think of a more blasphemous way to quote Jesus than to justify the murder of innocent babies by what he says is love towards your neighbor. Somehow he found a way. But the way that he defines love is that you just simply give people what they want. You just simply do what they want you to do and that's love. You affirm them, and that's love. But as humans, we can corrupt almost anything, including love. I think I was taught early on in life that when a person tries to use love to get you to do something, it's not love, it's abuse. So anytime we demand to be loved in a certain way, to say, if you love me, you will do this, that's not love, that's abuse. That's not a weaker brother, that's a Pharisee. When we demand love in a certain way, that's a Pharisee, not a weaker brother. But when the church goes in towards those that we love and says, man, I desperately want to find a way to love you, that's what Jesus is talking about. So when someone says to love me, you have to affirm me, to celebrate me, you have to affirm me, to love me, you have to agree with me, to love me, you have to let me do this, you act this way, do the thing that I want to do. That's not true. We know what love is. We know it's radically different than what the world says. But I believe that the other, uh, the, the other thing that we want to explain is that unfortunately we don't have to cover all of the ways that we can love each other today, but I do wanna make it easy with the form that we've given you, the 17 different ways that we love one another. I think the first is this, that we love one another with radical forgiveness. We love each other with radical forgiveness. 
Notice this, these two one another's. He says this in Ephesians chapter 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. If we wanna know how to love one another, we love them with radical forgiveness. Just as God has forgiven you. Colossians 3 says it this way, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, you should also forgive. So if we've ever been confused on what it looks like to love someone, this is the greatest place to start, forgiveness. If you've ever been confused on what the love that the church should have towards each other should be, it should be forgiveness. And I think we have to understand that there's nothing that about this that keeps us from being uh, ultimately human. Paul talks about that there's this war uh, between our flesh and our spirit, and all of us has the same war raging on inside of us. There are days when our flesh is going to win. And the only way that the church will endure the promise that Jesus made that the gates of hell will not prevail against it is if we extend forgiveness to each other in those moments when we're less than in the spirit. It's the only way. But I think it's incredibly difficult to do, especially what Jesus would say 70 times seven, unstoppable forgiveness. But that's why the church is different. That's why the church is different. This is one of those commitments that that Jesus mandates for us. We continue to forgive when we've been offended. And not only do we forgive personally, I think, but there's an obligation to forgive corporately and extend grace corporately. Second Corinthians, Paul writes a letter to the church concerning someone who's, who's possibly going to be pulled away from the church unless radical forgiveness is absolutely lavished on them. Notice what he says. But if any is called sorrow, he's called sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is punishment that was afflicted by the majority. So on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such one might be overwhelmed by the excessive sorrow. You get this? There's someone in their midst that's in danger of of literally removing themselves from the fellowship, from community, unless we radically display forgiveness. He says, this is entirely different than than the way that the world loves. The world has limits. We've seen those. We know those. It seems like every day something else is being canceled. We don't cancel each other here. But what radical grace and acceptance that means in this room that when we slip up, when we fail, when we disappoint, we know we're not canceled here. We know that we get to walk in the door the next day and the next day and the next day and we'll find forgiveness and grace and mercy and compassion over and over and over again. You can imagine that the need of forgiveness, there's also this need that the church continues to encourage one another in the faith. 
I'm not sure anyone could successfully live out the Christian life absent from the church. And I want to be clear here. I don't mean the big church. I mean the local church. I don't believe that anyone could successfully live out the Christian life apart from being in community with people. Like Jesse said, having your heart beats together. Scripture's clear that we have to be encouraged and spur on each other to live this life out well or successfully at all. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says it this way, and let us consider how to stimulate or spur one another on to love and to good needs, not forsaking our own assembling together. Why? As the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says, it's gonna get more difficult to live out this Christian faith. And some people have withdrawn from the church because of that. He says, you won't survive. You have to uh, be committed to gathering together so that you can be encouraged. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11 says it this way, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you also are doing. The church must be committed to encourage one another on and in the faith. There's absolutely no way that you can be encouraged in your faith apart from knowing people and being known by people though. Apart from knowing people and being known by people, you can't be encouraged. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, don't neglect the assembling together. Encouragement in the faith can't happen when you're absent. I've been asked this question before plenty of times. Uh, Can you be a Christian without going to church? I, I suppose that's true. I suppose it's possible. I think a similar question would, could you be married and not, live together. You can be. It's probably not going to be healthy. You're probably not going to experience the intimacy that God created and designed for marriage. But legally on paper, yeah, sure. But we we have this idea that we can go about this Christian faith in a completely different way than God ever designed or directed us to. And that will actually be successful in it. But that's not how it is. This is why God gives us the command, don't forsake the assembling together. I I struggle with this a little bit. Why is it that we take a command like, don't commit adultery, very seriously. Oh man, we can't do this. And then a command that says, don't forsake the assembling together. Literally, same book, there's same commands in the same letter to the church. And one we hold up here and we say, well, this one's, this one's more of a judgment call. It's for our own protection. But I know it's not easy. I know there's good reason other than just busy schedules. I think some people have been hurt in the church. And they have a hard time dealing with that, I think. I also think the enemy uses that in significant ways to pull us away from the church. There's this phrase, we've talked about it a little bit, like church hurt. Maybe you've heard of it. 
Maybe, maybe you have uh, someone in your life that decides to stay away from the church because they've been hurt in the church. But you know, I, I've never seen that actually displayed in any other portion of life. I've never heard the phrase, I've got neighborhood hurt. I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose to be homeless. I'm gonna voluntarily choose to be homeless because I just can't bear living next to anyone any more in my life. I've never heard, heard the, the phrase job hurt. I'm gonna voluntarily choose to be jobless because my employer was just a jerk. I can't think of any other way that this logic is employed, but we're good with it and it seems to be understanding and we use it often. If you go to a music store today, this afternoon, chances are you're gonna hear a kid play a really bad rendition of Sweet Child of Mine. It's gonna be horrible, right? They're gonna play all the notes wrong. They're not gonna get it right. It's gonna be absurd, but they're gonna give it their, I mean, they're gonna give it everything they got, right? But you know what I've never heard coming out of a music store when that happens? I've never once heard someone say, you know what I'm not for doing again? I'm never listening to Guns N' Roses ever again. But why do we judge like what it's supposed to be on, on the failures and the disappointments of some very few? Oftentimes that's what happens. Oftentimes we, we get in a spot and someone's dis, disappointed us, discouraged us, disregarded us. And I think the enemy uses that, that we've been hurt in the church and we say we've been hurt by the church. And so we cancel the church. This is the enemy's great plan to separate us. And we have to have this commitment to gather together, to love one another, regardless of our failures and our mistakes and our disappointments. We gotta think of church differently. I think as, as a part of that, we have to move past some of our difficult places in church, forgive miraculously, encourage one another along in the faith. And I also think this is very, very important, that the church must be committed to speak differently to and about one another. The church has to be committed to speak differently to and about one another. This is just a sampling of the, some of the scriptures you'll see on that uh, sheet that I gave you. Ephesians verse, uh, chapter four, verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Speak the truth. That doesn't mean just lying to, to get something that we want, but that means saying the hard things and speaking the truth when the truth is hard to say. It says this, James 4, verse 11, don't speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and the judges of the law. But if you judge the law, then you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. It says you don't speak against one another. 
Don't complain, James 5 says this, don't complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. I wonder what would be different in the church if we lived by these rules, if we lived by the rules that God gave us in Scripture. I think it'd be really, really hard to point to the the kind of distractions and divisions that we read a little bit ago. That we wouldn't even go as far as to complain against someone because we're so saturated with grace and mercy and forgiveness. It doesn't mean that we don't say the truth. We, we read that already. We go to that person, we speak the truth, and then we go with God. Lastly for today, the church has to be committed to pray for one another. The church has to be committed to pray for one another. Ed led us in this earlier today. There's nothing that links our hearts together like prayer. There's nothing. Meals are good. Cookouts are good. Student ministry is good. Children's ministry is good. Serving one another is good. Nothing will link our hearts together like praying for one another. James, the brother of Jesus, talks about this too. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. What's it accomplishing? Forgiveness, restoration, unity. Paul writes this in his letter of 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 8. He says this, um, We don't want you to be unaware, brethren, but our affliction came to us in Asia that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, that we despaired even in life. Think about this. Paul is speaking, great, the great missionary of the faith, right? Paul is talking about an experience he had in ministry. And he says, the, the, the problems that we occurred were so great that we despaired even in life. And indeed, we had a sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust ourselves but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us uh, from so great a peril of death and will deliver us and on whom he has set his hope and he will deliver us. But watch this. But you also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by persons on our behalf for favor bestowed on us through the prayers I love this, of many. He's talking about how the church came around them and began to pray. And through the church's prayers, they were delivered. Think think about this. Through the church's prayers, Paul was delivered. God had more ministry for Paul to do. God could have literally whispered and whatever situation and circumstance Uh, they found themselves in could have been undone immediately. And in some sovereign way, if you haven't been to the uh, prayer training, uh, 
uh, Ross and Suzanne will, will kind of move into this a little bit. And in some sovereign way, God chooses to use our prayers to accomplish his mission. I, I don't understand all of that. I don't understand why God does all of that. But I believe that it's true. And so when we begin to pray for one another, we see radical things happen, like the chains of sin broken. When we begin to pray for one another, we see marriages restored. We see things like anxiety and depression stomped out. We see things that can't happen on our own happen. Why? Because of the prayers of many. Paul was in a desperate situation, despaired for his life, and he says, I owe thanks to you because you prayed for me and God delivered me. This is radical. This is different than the world could ever imagine that our prayers would unite our hearts and allow God to do what he wants to do through our prayers. I think for so long, the world has told us that church is just something that we do, something that's good for us. But I think for some of us, we've been told that the church is for maybe those who can't do life alone. I read a story by uh, Dave Dore, uh, Oster, pastor, theologian. He said, recently, a, a firefighter in our church was told uh, by one of his colleagues that he invited to come to church that belief in Jesus and going to church was for weak people. He writes, and he says, I find that ironic coming from a firefighter because I have a fire hydrant in the yard that runs alongside of our house. I've never looked at that fire hydrant and felt any shame at all. I drive by a firehouse every day and never think if this community didn't have weak people, we would never need firehouses. And when I pay my property taxes each month, taxes that help finance the fire departments, I never get angry thinking if I could just handle fires on my own, I wouldn't have to write this check. Imagine a person whose house is on fire, the fire's raging out of control, and as soon a fire truck pulls up, sirens blaring, the person runs out of their house at a rage and says, how dare you come to my house and think that I can't handle this by myself? Firefighters are for weak people, not for me. What would you think of someone like that? I think we would all agree that they were insane. We know that fire, uh, fire departments are for weak people because uh, a power exists that they simply can't deal with on their own, fire. Actually, we admire firefighters because they're the people who have committed themselves to take on the power of fire at a personal expense. Christians are weak in the same sense that a community is weak for having fire departments where people who acknowledge that this power exists and they uh, can't confront and live the holiness of God without the power of the church in our lives. This shouldn't cause shame, though. 
This should cause a great deal of thankfulness and gratitude that the church is here. I think some of us just need to lean in to the church. Not to a building, not to a Sunday morning, not to a show, not to a song, not to a sermon, but the church. The one another's. I think some of us might possibly just need to lean into the one another's. As Jesse prepares to lead us today, I'm going to ask you that same question I asked you at the beginning of our time together. And I'd ask that you would actually ask the Lord, would you answer this question, Lord? What's the team that I'm tempted to put above your church? What's my greatest alliance? And how does the enemy want to use that to take me down? Would you, would you pray that with me even now? Lord, we thank you for this time that you've given us. To study just a little bit of your church and what it's like to love one another and live in community with one another radically different But Lord, we know that the enemy's clever, he schemes, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so Lord, I I pray that even now you would reveal to us our, our greatest allegiances. The ones that he's after and the ones that he is coming for to divide us from your church. to not only take us away from people, but Lord, uh, to bury our hearts in anger, criticism and shame, to not just destroy our relationships, but to destroy our faith. Lord, it's no secret why you, you were so insistent on the one and others, because we're human. We fail often. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to lean into those things. Lord, I pray that you'd help us love one another in radical ways. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to forgive each other as you have forgiven us. Lord, I pray that you would protect the ways that we talk to and about each other. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us a burden and a heart to pray for one another. And I pray that through those things, Lord, you would use the church and this church to expand your kingdom. Because the world would look on and see a people radically committed to one another because you have made us a people desperately in need of grace and recipients of your great love. So Jesus, I I pray that you convict us now of the places that we're tempted to, to let go first. Lord, we ask that you would convict us now of the the ways that we have not loved each other well. 
Lord, convict us of the ways that we haven't spoke to or about each other well. Lord, convict us of the ways that we have not prayed for each other well. And make us better for confession and repentance and grace. And it's your name, Jesus, that we pray.